Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, attending before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Um, the first death, of course, is the death uh, that we experience in our bodies, the physical death. And that second death is uh, the eternal uh, judgment, eternal death of uh, the fires of hell. That's what our um, scripture is referring to there. Our Belgic Confession is found on page 870 of our Trinity Psalter hymnal. It's um, fairly long, so uh, I'll just read it. We don't need to read it uh, corporately this morning. And let's uh, listen and, and attend to our instruction. Uh, just briefly, a little bit of a, a for, uh, forecast here, the outline of what we're going to read through. Uh, first, there will be a second coming. Our Lord Jesus will return. He will return to judge all. There will be a general resurrection uh, and then a consummation of all things. And this is a great comfort to the elect. So that's the outline of our uh, confession this morning. Article 37. Finally, we believe, according to God's word, that when the time appointed by the Lord to come is come, which is unknown to all creatures, and the number of the elect is complete, our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven bodily and visibly, as he ascended with great glory and majesty to declare himself the judge of the living and the dead. He will burn this old world in fire and flame in order to cleanse it. Then all human creatures will appear in person before that great judge, men, women, and children, who have lived from the beginning until the end of the world. They will be summoned there by the voice of the archangel and by the sound of the divine trumpet. For all those who died before that time will be raised from the earth, their spirits being joined and united with their own bodies in which they lived. And as for those who are still alive, they will not die like the others, but will be changed in the twinkling of an eye from corruptible to incorruptible. Then the books, that is, the consciences, will be opened, and the dead will be judged according to the things they did in the world whether good or evil. Indeed, all people will give account of all the idle words they have spoken, which the world regards as only plain games. And then the secrets and hypocrisies of men will be publicly uncovered in the sight of all. Therefore, with good reason, the thought of this judgment is horrible and dreadful to wicked and evil people. But it is very pleasant and a great comfort to the righteous and elect, since their total redemption will then be accomplished. They will then receive the fruits of their labor and of the trouble they have suffered. 
Their innocence will be openly recognized by all. And they will see the terrible vengeance that God will bring on the evil ones who tyrannized, oppressed, and tormented them in this world. The evil ones will be convicted by the witness of their own consciences and shall be made immortal, but only to be tormented in the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In contrast, the faithful and elect will be crowned with glory and honor. The Son of God will confess their names before God his Father and the holy and elect angels. All tears will be wiped from their eyes and their cause at present condemned as heretical and evil by many judges and civil officers will be acknowledged as the cause of the Son of God. And as a gracious reward, the Lord will make them possess a glory such as the heart of man could never imagine. So we look forward to that great day with longing in order to enjoy fully the promises of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, that's our confession uh, for today, our Belgic confession. And that's the conclusion. And so it says in a somewhat pregnant way, finally, finally, at the end of everything we believe, we believe uh, this. And... uh, This teaching is is very important and very valuable to us. It is a gospel teaching. It's not secondary teaching. Uh, We live in an age of great confusion about the return of Christ and the end of this age. Indeed, uh, there's always been confusion in the church. You know, when Jesus is ascending uh, before Pentecost and, and the 12 are there, they say, well, you know, when are you going to return? Like next week, a couple months? And, um, and, a lot of Paul's epistles, First uh, Thessalonians 4, um, are written to address confusion about the return of Christ. Has he already returned? When will he return? What will happen? Um, but there are two great errors that have swept over the church over the last number of centuries uh, that are, I think, kind of baked into how we think about the end of this age. And both of them have to do uh, with the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ. We didn't read about the millennium and we don't have time to go into detail about it today. But suffice it to say that the two great errors are uh, pre-millennialism and post-millennialism. The pre and the post. Um, When you read uh, Jonathan Edwards, when you read the early Puritan fathers... Uh, They seem to be thinking as though they're coming to the new world and the golden age of Christ is going to begin and commence in this land. And this has been infused into American uh, life and thought and culture and politics since the founding of our nation. That America was the shining city on the hill. And this was a sort of a post-millennial vision. And this post-millennial vision, this confidence in in the fruits of, of our society, of a Christian culture... Grew not only in America but in Europe through the 19th century. And then it was really the horror of the First and Second World War, the horror of the 20th century, that led to a reaction in the church. And a lot of us might have grown up or been exposed to churches in which there was a premillennial expectation. Jesus will come back when things are really, really bad. And there will be a rapture and all sorts of different uh, dispensational uh, visions here in which... Um, you will establish a thousand year reign on earth. So we have these two visions which both circle around a thousand year, this worldly reign of Christ of some sort, pre-millennial and post-millennial. 
Both of these views are, I believe, errant, according to what the New Testament teaches. Both of them take our focus off of God's, Christ's promises, and what our confession teaches us uh, this morning. Um, And both of them can, in many ways, detract from our comfort. Uh, That we might, as our title says this morning, uh, have a great confidence, a great hope uh, for the return of Christ. So the the return of Christ, the last judgment, should be gospel comfort for us. It should uh, be hope. This is really the thesis of the book of Revelation. Um, The book of Revelation is written to a church that is suffering And and the argument of that book is that while the church is suffering, God is in heaven unfolding his great plan. Recorded in various seals and scrolls, right? Christ is ruling and reigning and will bring all things to a glorious conclusion. So our promised hope, our comfort, is in the new creation. It is yet to come. We shouldn't seek that new creation here and now on earth. And both millennial visions of the post-millennial and the pre-millennial fall into this trap or this error. Yes, we have many blessings uh, now of our new creation glory. Um, We will, however, receive a consummation at that point. So if you fear the final judgment, and I think many of us do, you know, having every... Uh, Secret word revealed (laughs) right now brings shame to my heart as I think forward to what that would look like. Um, That reveals a a lack of uh, confidence, perhaps uh, a lack of understanding about how this will be a blessing to us. Um, The Heidelberg Catechism talking about the creed, teaching the creed. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? Notice the question. What comfort? Is it to you? It says, in all my sorrow and persecution. Again, the last judgment looks awfully good if you're being persecuted. (laughs) I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. Christ, again, Melchizedek, a holy priest king, a king who's also a mediator, the judge who stood in our place. And the catechism concludes, he will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Now we need to be careful, of course, we don't delight in the judgment of other men. Uh, the casting into condemnation. We pray for their conversion. Uh, the medieval church, Thomas Aquinas, had a, had a similar idea that the, that the beatific vision, the vision of the saints in glory, included some sort of, of joy at the fires of hell. We don't want to say that. But what is this comfort, this joy? Those who are lying about Christ... Those who are persecuting his church and his people will be brought to account. And I think deep down, every one of us, and we see this in the world today with with various movements about about justice, right? Our hearts burn and long for justice. And that longing for justice will be fulfilled. So big picture overview, 
The end times are not uh, dominant in our Belgic Confession of Faith. We've had 37 articles. This is one of 37. Uh, Maybe 2 or 3%. It's a long article. Maybe it's 4% of the whole thing, right? But it's an important thing. It it anchors the end. And um, we have a a very outsized speculation in um, the typical Christian, say for instance, the Christian bookstore. Or Christian media. Speculation about the end of the world. The apocalypse. Right? Such things. It shouldn't dominate. But it is an important anchor. And so what we confess is really quite simple. The outline of our confession is there will be a second coming. Jesus will return and judge all. Those who have died. Those who are not yet dead. There will be a general resurrection. All of us. All of our bodies will be raised from the dead. And there will be a consummation of all things, a comfort to the elect, vindication, glory, honor, and horrible judgment for the wicked. The first thing we want to say here and remember as Christians confessing our faith in the world is that Christianity has purpose and meaning and plan. God has a plan for human history. Uh, We do confess And though the world cries out for justice, we confess that it really exists and it really will be fulfilled. All suffering will be put right. Evildoers will be punished. Pains and sorrows will be removed. Uh, Romans 12 says, make room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Quoting the Old Testament, right? God will set all things right. That's the vision of the New Testament. And of course, uh, the world... Um, taken a godless approach to the end of all things, has no reason or basis to complain about justice or injustice. By what uh, norm do they measure? Um, So that God is coming and will set things right is bad news for sinners. There's no way around it. And that's why we are called to look to Christ Jesus in the judgment, that our judge is also our priest and our mediator. So notice, for instance, our confession talks about this time is secret, but it will be when the number of the elect is complete. God is accomplishing his purposes of election now in history through his church, even through our suffering and struggles. Think of, um, and we don't often step back, but, but in Ephesians, chapter 1 of Ephesians that opens with this great uh, vision... And by the way, after we finish this section of Genesis, we're going to begin a series on Ephesians. So we'll be preaching through this text soon. What does Paul write to the Ephesians? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. He predestined us for adoption in love. As sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Right? That famous teaching on election and predestination. But how does that passage, and it's all one big sentence, how does it end? According to the riches of his grace, verse 7, verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of of time. The purpose of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel is that God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite 
all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So God's plan of election, gospel mystery, is fulfilled, reaches its really climax and and consummation in the last judgment, in the new creation. Well, I do want to say uh, one thing about the comfort we have here as Christians uh, versus uh, contemporary speculation and error. Uh, I spent a few weeks preaching up at a church plant in Idaho last week of January and February. And it led me to read a little bit more about um, not only Moscow, Idaho and and Doug Wilson, which some of you may have heard about, but that that he was a part of a a cultural movement that has roots back in the 1950s. Uh, Rush Dooney, uh, a reformed-ish writer who was a Christian reconstructionist who thought that we could build the kingdom here on earth. Um, and he, he kind of had dark visions that American society would crumble and fall apart. Sometimes that sounds more likely than not, right? Uh, all societies crumble and fall apart. But then when, when our modern Western world fell to pieces, that the church would be left to rebuild this millennial kingdom here on earth. And the teachings of Rush Dooney were used by many Christians to move to Idaho, of all places. The Pacific Northwest, the mountains. You could, you know, have your chickens, have your goats. Uh, The rest of the world's going to fall apart. But we will have our Christian society. That vision, brothers and sisters, is very pervasive in the church today. It's uh, drawing a lot of adherence um, as... The world in which we live is less and less influenced by Christian norms and by the orderly ways which it had inherited from the church over the ages and becomes more and more chaotic. And so this error is really drawing power because there's a longing for the order, for the peace, for that ordered society. What we confess as Christians, however, doesn't depend upon the order we see in the world. What we confess as Christians is what the book of Revelation teaches and what Christ teaches. Christ is ruling and reigning now. Our vision of the reign of Christ, the millennium, is not that it will be before or after his coming. It is a now millennium. Sometimes this is called millennialism, which is not a great name because that means there's no millennium. But we believe when the scriptures speak of the rule and reign of Christ and use this idea of a thousand years, this ideal number is not a particular uh, historic thousand years on earth necessarily. It is rather a perfect, complete, fulfilled rule and reign of Christ in his church. Christ is reigning now. Satan is bound. The kingdom is advancing. The redemptive heavenly kingdom of Christ. It is advancing towards a consummation and a climax which will not be worked out according to the natural laws, and politics, uh, forces of this world. It will be a supernatural event. Show me the trumpet that can sound that everyone on earth will hear <laughs> at the same time. There's no such thing. You know, Give me the voice, right? This is a supernatural event. There is no knowing. Do you notice how so often in the world when things go kind of crazy or wonky, you know, people say like, the end is near. I think, you know, I don't know. You get people, whether they're Christians or aren't Christians, like, I don't know. I think it's the end times. It's like, because things are bad. Things have always been bad. 
Yes, we do have prophecies in Scripture that things will get worse as warning signs and birth pangs. But the fundamental truth of Scripture is that we cannot know that no man knows when Christ will return. Any time after his ascension, he could come back. It could have been one week or it can be 10,000 years. We don't know. All we know is that there's no more work that needs to be done. He has completed everything. He has set the table, as it were. If you think of hosting a great feast or a dinner party, and you have a shopping list, and maybe you do some food prep, maybe you put some stuff ahead, you do it in the freezer or the fridge, and then you set your table, right? You put out the silverware and the crystal, and you decorate, and maybe you put some music on, right? Like, the table is set. The feast is all in order. And that trumpet is going to be like ringing the dinner bell and calling us to the table. That's why the focus is entirely upon the return of Christ and the completion of the number of the elect. The new heavens and the new earth. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Hebrews said, my father has prepared a country for uh, the patriarchs. God is not slow about his promises. So the resurrection really is the beginning and the end of the gospel. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. That means all men will be raised to life or to death. And we uh, will be judged. It will take nothing less than the resurrection of the dead to finally and fully conquer sin in the world. We're not going to gradually progress as a culture and a society. And this is the power and the import of 1 Corinthians 15.50. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. <laughs> the only way the kingdom of God will come is when we are in our resurrection bodies. This is the profound power of New Testament eschatology. And the end of time is not the release from bodies and time and space. That was the Greek error, right? That the problem is matter and material. We need to get free and just be in the realm of spirit. Floating around on clouds. The Christian hope is the restoration and renewal of the body. I think we'll see that this morning in Genesis 23. Where Abraham goes to great lengths to buy a grave. He lived his whole life in the Holy Land. The inheritance And he never bought anything. But he buys a grave for Sarah's bones. Because he knew that she would inherit the promise after she died. After her bones were risen from the grave. I think the most important thing we can share with our friends and family is this fundamental gospel truth. Through so much of Christian history. Think of uh, the... Um, Last Judgment of Christ, the painting in the um, Sistine Chapel, right? It's a terror. It's a threat. It's a stick. In the evangelical churches in which I grew up in, uh, watching uh, movies about the rapture, Thief in the Night, or listening to Pat Robertson on the 700 Club that I watched with my mother. Father, forgive me. (laughs) It was fear. It was always fear to beat us into faithfulness and evangelism or faithfulness and holy living. You don't want to be sinning when Jesus comes back. The message 
of both the Catechism and our Confession are so clear that this is a great comfort and a great hope of the Christian. At the final judgment, you will be judged by your own conscience. Sounds terrifying. But imagine if you had a mind and a heart that was fully on board with the gospel, finally. (laughs) And really, deeply to its very core, understood what it meant that Christ had died for all your sins. And so when you review your life and you flip through the book and you look at all your sins, you see each and every one of them as fully and finally paid for by Christ. You see them as horrible things, but as washed away, as cleansed, as purified. You will hate them. You will truly hate your sinful self. And you will know that you are truly set free from them. And because of that, you will rejoice with this joy at having taken every one of them away and been purged and cleansed. The final judgment will be the glory of your justification on display for all the world. And you, as God created you and intended you to be, you will finally be that new man. You will be as Christ, shining like a brilliant star in glory. Those, however, who insist on standing apart from Christ on that day will know their sins as they are in themselves. So it is our prayer, of course, in the application of this gospel truth that we might yearn for and long for and, um, and really embrace our life in the new creation. Rejoice in the way of holiness that is our future. Turn even now from our sins, for we have been set free from them. That we would ever live in the light of the glory for which Christ has purchased us and prepare ourselves uh, for that day. Uh, that we can peacefully, confidently look forward to it in hope and joy. Let's pray. Merciful God, our sins rise up before us each and every day. They are stubborn and our flesh can be craven and foul. But we pray, O Lord, that we might know more and more the image and the beauty and the glory of Christ as he is forming us and shaping us after that image. And Lord, we pray that we could begin now to recite, begin now to recite the script and the storyline, the plot of that last judgment, of that consummate display of the justification which is already true of us, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We praise God for his precious gift. In his name we pray. Amen.